Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 250, the self-titled Buffalo Tom LP. It's the first and only time we're going to have Buffalo Tom on the show, which is too bad. Mm -hmm. But um, thankfully, we've got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Bill Janowitz on the show. It's a great interview. Not only is it great to have Bill on the show for Buffalo Tom content, but the interview with Bill, he really covers a lot of what was going on in the American underground in the late 80s, early 90s. So it's a really, really great interview. If you want to just hear about a ton of bands that were in this circle, in this scene, coming up in the late 80s into the big alternative explosion of the early 90s, great interview with Bill. Yeah, and I mean, considering Buffalo Tom is one of those bands, there's really not a lot out there about, especially about how they formed and, and, and their early years, like the SST years. I'm sure back in the day there were articles in, you know, spin or whatever, or zines, but, um, to find stuff now is difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got a few nugs, at least I do. Yeah. And I'm sure you do too. So, do. all right. I expect nothing less. Speaking of expecting nothing less from you, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to do the H section, like of my 10 records that I listen to that oh, uh, where the bands are just start with the letter H. I have to, I have to remind people what this is because it's been a while. Well, yeah. I've been slacking. I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure that you finished it last time you tried to do it. <laughs> so you're just going in alphabetical order yep. on the last 10 just random things that you listen to. Yep. That start right. with the letter H. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Do okay. it, man. H me. Hedgehog, the album that I listened to is Gnaw. Ed Gregor, who played in Out, Alter Drown, Shower of Smegma, Oblitosaurus, Swa, in between Sylvia and Philo, uh, and also Daryl Goldfarb of SOS, Mustard, um, some serious PJD action going on with Hedgehog. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. This is their, I believe, third album, and it rules pretty hard. Actually, kind of tough to categorize. It's melodic, proggy, or math rock, if you prefer. Hmm. Some of it reminds me of the more angular style of All, or some Left Insane vibes. No Means No would be a good reference, maybe. Really? It's really good. Hopefully, one day I'll get my hands on their PJD era stuff. I'd love to hear that. Hedgehog. Yep. Okay, a band I think maybe you brought up at some point. I saw them live recently and was super impressed. Edmonton, Alberta's Homefront. No. No? Okay. I've seen uh, lead singer Graham McKinnon's previous band, No Problem, a few times. More of a hardcore band. Uh, but they have three great albums out on Deranged. People should check out. I've been recently digging this brand new Homefront album, Games of Power. They have more of a new wave post-punk thing going. Amazing energy live. What makes them stand out is synth player and percussionist Clint Frazier. This is their second album, and both are on uh, this UK label, La Vida Esmosmus. I'm totally mispronouncing that, but check out Homefront, Ryan. Okay. Yeah, I had not mentioned that, but I will check it out. Half String, A Fascination with Heights, 1996 independent project records. Tempe, Arizona band circa 91 to 97. This was their only full length, although there there were some singles and EPs, also uh, most of them on independent project records. Generally, you see them referred to as a shoegaze band, 
I've kind of always hated that term. Uh, I hear some Brit pop. It can kind of get psychedelic. It's a nice, mellow, somewhat melancholy listen. Bruce reissued it last year as a two CD, two LP set with a bunch of previously unreleased tracks, full band history, always amazing packaging. Check out Half String. Ryan, have you ever heard of the band Half Biscuit, Half Man? No. Okay, me neither. <laughs> uh, but they've been around forever. Uh, the album I checked out is called Get This. No one cares about your creative hub, so get your fucking hedge cut. About your creative hub? Yeah. <laughs> so get your hedge cut? Yeah. Nice. 2018 on UK label Probe Plus. Now, this band have been active since 1984, and they're still going today. They've been described as England's greatest folk band, and they're not a folk band. They're more like, I don't know, Ian Dury or XTC or something like that. I think the person, I can't remember the, the critic's name who, who coined that phrase, but I think he's more referring to the lyrics. They're satirical, kind of social commentary. But these are some of the catchiest songs I've heard in a really long time. They've got like 15 albums, and I, I need in. So check that out, Ryan. Half Man, Half Biscuit. Wow. That sounds good. Okay, here's one I think you're probably a fan of, but I don't think we've ever talked about this band. Handsome. Oh, yeah. They're of course. Wa- they're one and done self-titled album from 1997. Bit of a super group formed by Helmet guitarist Peter Mengade after he left the band in 1993. He and quicksand guitarist Tom Capone recruited former Cro-Mags Murphy's Law alloy drummer Pete Hines, bassist Eddie Knapp, uh, who went on to play with Lanigan, Eddie Knapp did, and vocalist Jeremy Chatelaine. Uh, Jeremy was in Iceburn on their first record, mm-hmm. uh, Salt Lake hardcore band Insight, and later Jets to Brazil. And he was in Helmet as a bassist as well. It's a really good album. Some of that heavy, drop-D riffing of Helmet, but more 90s alt-rock musically, less angular than Helmet. Good description. Yeah, thanks. Okay, Holger Chukai. The album is Radio Wave Surfer. Holger is most well-known as bassist and primary engineer in German band Can. He has a lot of solo albums starting in 1979 and going all the way up to to his passing in 2017. This one came out in 1991. It's just gloriously weird, but also super musical. Um, Vocally, he does all kinds of things, but primarily this kind of spoken word, almost beat poetry. Uh, prior to forming Ken, he studied with Karlheinz Stockhausen, so you can you can hear that influence all over this. If you like Ken, or you're in the mood for something super arty and experimental, I'd recommend it. Hunt Sales Memorial. The album is Get Your Shit Together, 2019 Big Legal Mess Records, which was a sub-label of Fat Possum. Hunt was in a bunch of bands, usually with his brother Tony. Tony was a bassist, Hunt was a drummer, probably most know their dad was comedian soupy sales and i i know them from being the rhythm section on iggy's kill city and lust for life albums and some of the live albums from that era uh on this album he drums plays some guitar and sings it's really good he wrote all the songs he's got this great ragged voice some of it is like that kill city era uh egg um Mm. some it's kind of stonesy it's really good Okay, here's one that's on the tree, Harry Howard and the NDE. I think I've talked about his 2013 album Pretty when I picked it up. This is the follow-up, Sleepless Girls, 
both on Melbourne label Spooky Records. This is just awesome. Harry has that vocal drawl perfected, very Jonathan Richmond. For me, they're at their best when they're channeling the Velvets or the Stooges. Um, And there's a new album with them backing Kid Congo that's live, and it's on In the Red. It's kind of like Kid Congo's greatest hits, uh, solo stuff, Gun Club, Cramps. Ooh. Yeah. That'd be good. Any update on those These Immortal Souls reissues? I haven't heard a word about that. Yeah, neither have I. Where are those? We need those. But yeah. that's uh, that's a good recommend for some Harry Howard for sure. By the way, I uh, I let it slide how you you know made that Holger mm. reference. It should be under C. But well, go ahead. You're not Keep letting going. it slide because you're bringing it up right now. No, no, no. I'm letting. Well, I I, I would have been harder on you. I'm letting it slide. It okay. should be under C. Keep going. Yeah, Hawkwind. I've been trying to get more Hawkwind into my musical diet. I know those early 70s albums, like the classics, really well. So I've been trying to check out some others. Like, And there's just so many. Some are better than others. Uh, the one that I dig, that I keep going back to, that I got into recently, is 1977's Quark, Strangeness, and Charm. It's rockin', psychedelic, trippy. Kind of surprised it took me this long to get to it, actually. It's the lineup with Aide Shaw who I know quite well from being in the Bevis Frond and various other projects on Nick's Waranzo label, and he's got some solo albums. Probably most well-known for the epic Hassan Isaba. That's a track on this album where they just chant, Hashish, 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 Hashish. <laughs> it's got some amazing hypnosis cover art. Save the best for last, Ryan. So, you know, with new, new remixes of of albums that especially ones that you you know like the back of your hand can be kind of hit or miss sometimes mm-hmm. so the hanoi rocks oriental beat 40th anniversary remix came out last month and it's unbelievable the band has always complained about the mix and i usually wind up thinking you can't improve on an original like warts and all you know um I mean, for starters, this is easily the greatest album to ever come out of Finland, and it's just one of one of the greatest rock albums ever, period. Every song is a hit. It's like hearing it again for the first time, this remix. Uh, comes with a big poster of the band. My only complaint is some liners would have been nice, uh, but the music is just so good. It's, it's just sickening. Wow. Well, that's what you want a remix to be like, for sure. Yeah. That's what I have, Ryan. What do you have? Okay, well... I wanted to mark this momentous occasion of our 250th episode with a segment I'm going to call Mojack Revisited. Ah, okay. So so you actually got me thinking last episode on the melting plot and how I quite liked the DC3 song on that record. And you were kind of like, yeah, it's good, but it's just not as good as the stuff on their records. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm paraphrasing you, of course, but... It got me thinking about how long it's been since I've listened to some of the records or some of the bands that were were kind of first timers for me or I didn't really know that well. Yeah. And and so I wanted to do a Mojack revisited. I might do this again, but it just caused me to think at episode 250 and after last week, hey, why don't I go back to the first 100 episodes i just wanted to start at the start and just you know see which ones jumped out at me as 
bands that I didn't really know that well, or I was kind of lukewarm on, didn't really like. Like every episode, even if I'm not a huge fan, I try to find something redeeming um, if it's just the art, the fact that it exists, right? But not every record that we listen to are are ones that I, you know, I know really well or that I fell in love with through the show. So I found nine okay. and and I just hit them in order. A lot of them are really, really early and I re-listened to them. Mojack revisited to see if my mind had changed or if my ears had changed. So the first one, starting from SST 001, that caught my attention was was 008, the Overkill, Hell's Getting Hotter 7-inch. Remember that one? I do. So that one, when I heard it, first time I had ever heard it, I believe, on the show, or at least I wasn't that familiar with it. I was kind of... I was kind of lukewarm on it. Um, you know, it ha- has kind of a DC hardcore sound, you know, oppressed by the police. They want to win the war. They don't like school. It started out again when I'm listening to it, like, oh, okay, you know, I don't mind this. But by the end, it just still really didn't do it for me. The overkill. I didn't re-listen to the full length, though, um, because I, the full length we had um, Felice Lococo on as a guest, if you recall. And that, that record has kind of a different vibe. Yeah. Um, I just listened to the seven inch here and hell's getting hotter. Just okay for me still. Okay. Uh, probably the one that I received the most hate mail on of <laughs> all time, uh, was SST 10, the stains yeah. record. So that still uh, comes up. It still chaps people's ass that we didn't like drool yeah. over that record. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I listened to it again. I did like it more this time, but I'm still not a huge fan. It just really seems to me like a record that, I don't know, we described it, I believe in that episode as something where it kind of comes down to a time and a place. I think they would have been just an amazing, amazing live band. And that might've put me over the edge, but you know, the stains kind of just okay for me still. I do. I did like it more this time, though. I would say. Uh, the third one that jumped out at me was SST Eleven, "The Worm." We're off. I'm dead. Single. Again, still, still kind of just okay for me. Um, I definitely like the songs. We're off. I'm dead. The problem is, is that time has come today. Cover on it, just kind of like, I don't know. I can't get over that lame cover song. Yeah. Well, the full length is where it's at. I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. Um, now here are some ones that I was really happy that I went back to and listened to like St. Vitus, the self-titled SST 22, where we had Joe Carducci on as a guest. When I listened to that record again, for the first time, probably in years, I was just like, yes, yeah, yes, yes. I don't think I really knew what I was in for when I first listened to that way back all those years ago. Um, that's way more in your wheelhouse than mine. But after having gone through several St. Vitus records and then after a few years to go back to this first one, SST 22, just loving it, loving it. And Ryan, hey, rest in peace, Mark Adams, the bass player, passed away recently. Oh, yeah. Um, And here's another one that uh, caused me to do the Mojack Revisited here, DC3, This is the Dream. Uh, I feel like when I listen to this, I knew a bit about DC3. I had listened to them off and on throughout the years and never really dove deeply into them. And then when we did them on the show, 
I, I kind of started to appreciate them episode to episode, but this is the first DC three record that I did a deep dive on. I'm not, again, I'm not sure I was ready for it. Really happy. I went back to re-listen to it and I'm going to re-listen to all the DC three stuff because man, oh man, um, that is some excellent, excellent proggy heavy rock, um, with some keys, some space sounds, um, killer Des vocals, killer Paul Rossler, just awesome. Yep. Uh, now here on the not so exciting side was uh, October Faction. Oh, boy, <laughs> uh, October Faction SST thirty six. I checked out that one and uh, the follow up again. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever get into October Faction. Um, and similarly, I listened to SST forty seven, Tom Tricoli's dog. We actually had Tom on as a guest, and what a what a swell guy. But for me. I don't know. I'm just not much of a jam band guy. Yeah. And and not that not that Tom Tricoli's dog is like a jam band, but I don't know. It still just didn't really grab me. But again, finishing off with two more that I really enjoyed revisiting out of our first 100 episodes, SWA, Your Future If You Have One, SST 53. Again, kind of like DC3 where I knew about them. I had listened to them on and off throughout the years. Never really did a deep dive. And just like DC3, by the time we had gotten to, you know, the third or fourth SWA record, I was fully in, but hadn't really kind of taken the time to go back to the start. And wow, um, man, this first SWA record is just full chuck. It's it's just awesome. Mm -hmm. SST53. And then finally, the other one, the other one that I re-listened to for the first time in years was Paper Bag, Ticket to Trauma. I'm not going to say that it grabbed me again quite as much as re-listening to those very early DC3 or SWA records. But after having gone through a number of Paper Bag records, again, I was way more ready for this first Paper Bag record that we covered on the show and totally dug it. So... All of this Mojack Revisited just goes to say, give records another chance, too. Even if you've done a deep dive and done a podcast on them, <laughs> you know, because um, I, I would say probably um, what it did is it validated that the more and more I got to know and listen to a band and started to enjoy them, I really needed to go back to the start. And I know you do that. I don't really do that for these episodes, but I've got to start doing that for sure. I feel like there's per people in the SST community that like practically only listen to records on SST. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I feel like, you know, if I only got into SWA on the Sex Doctor record and I never went back to revisit the earlier releases, that's a shame, right? And it's time to rectify that. So I don't know. Maybe I'll uh, have to do a Mojack Revisited for the second 100 releases because there were a lot of first timers between episode 100 and 200. We're going to do, when we get to episode 300, we're going to do like our five dark horses like we did for the first. From 200 to 300? Yeah. 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 Well, I'm going to use that as an excuse to go back even deeper because uh, I don't know. It's the gift that keeps on giving, the SST catalog. Speaking of bands, Ryan, like the one you just described, you know, where you, you kind of had heard them, didn't really know them super well, that's Buffalo Tom for me, so let's get into this record. 
History lesson, part one. Yeah, and for me, Buffalo Tom, I came to them truly just through the Jay Mascus reference. It wasn't even SST. I actually have like the reissue of this self-titled record on CD, and I only picked it up because it said produced by Jay Mascus. I had heard about them, uh, but then I got into this and their second record in particular. So really, really cool to get into Buffalo Tom. Finally, it's too bad we only get to do one episode. We'll have to do our best to give them their due. Yeah. Boston-based trio formed in 1986 featuring guitarist-vocalist Bill Janowitz, bassist-vocalist Chris Coburn, and drummer Tom McGuinness. The band's website says this album, their debut, and their, unfortunately for us, only release on SST, was released in 1988. Discog says June 1989. I'm leaning towards 89 based solely on the fact that that they're not in the 1988 SST catalog, nor are they listed in the 1989's First Harvest section uh, of the the same catalog. This lineup of the band has stayed the same for their entire run, the first of which ended sometime between 1998 and 2000. During that first run of the band, they released five more full-length albums and a number of singles, they really started getting a lot of attention around 92, 93 with the albums Let Me Come Over and Big Red Letter Day with tracks mm-hmm. like Tail Lights, Fade, Soda Jerk, Sleepy Eyed. That's more, you know, the kind of stuff I've heard over the years from Buffalo Tom. Lots of appearances on late night TV, videos in rotation, songs on TV and movie soundtracks, tons of airplay on alternative radio, really just exemplified that 90s alternative rock wave for that decade. Yeah, for sure. As you'll hear in the interview, and as they've said in other interviews, they didn't split up per se. They just kind of slowed down, had families, chipped away at writing and and various other projects. Bill, in particular, stayed active in music. He released his first solo album in 1996, eventually releasing several more. Uh, one, and, and then once the band went on hiatus, he, he really hit the ground running. You'll hear f- a bit about some more of his projects in the interview. Uh, he's also a writer, uh, which we touch on, and, and I'll, I'll talk a bit more following the interview about, about some of that stuff. And... Uh, as you'll hear in the interview, Buffalo Tom reactivated in 2007, uh, and they've released three more records since then. Why don't we throw over to the interview then? Sure. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Bill Janovitz. Bill, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Brad. Okay, I want to go uh, all the way back and learn a little bit about you before we get into Buffalo Tom. Did you grow up in Boston? No, I grew up uh, on a, a Long Island, New York town called uh, Huntington, uh, up on the North Shore, and, um, you know, I was there until I was about 16, so I was already in bands and things at like 12, 13, 14, you know, and every year seems like it's gets shorter and shorter, so back then it was, um, it's a big part of my life being in, in rock and roll bands, so when I moved to Massachusetts, we moved from this big town where I was doing really well, not not academically, but but otherwise I was doing okay, and uh, moved to a, a, a town, a very small sort of rural Boston town. It's not uh, a rural suburb, I should say. It, it wasn't even really suburban. It was more like real, almost almost countryish town, somewhere between suburbs and exurbs, as they say here. And um, but that town, uh, Medfield, Massachusetts, led a lot of us into UMass Amherst, mm. and there were guys that were a little older than me into cool music, 
they went up to UMass. I got up to UMass. Amherst about about two hours away from us, and um, I started to really kind of get into newer music um, and and meet people that way, including our would be dr- our, our soon to be drummer, I should say, Tom McGinnis, who was already playing in um, <clears throat> kind of an in, an indie uh, original band um, with his cousin who wrote songs and was amazing. So. You know, like even when I was in high school, so that was my that's 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 my sort of high school vibe, right? I can kind of keep going, but I won't bore you with all the details. But that's that's kind of how I met Chris and Tom. Chris Chris had grown up a little bit in in Medfield as well, but he was already at UMass Amherst. He was two years ahead of me by the time I got to Medfield. So, but all those little connections um, brought us together eventually. Right. So when you're playing in bands in high school before the move, was was this with your brothers or with just other friends? No, it was mostly, uh, I didn't really start, I didn't really play with any of my brothers except for my next youngest, Paul, who's two years younger than me. Um, he just recently passed away. He he uh, he started playing with me more like when we moved to Massachusetts, mm-hmm. basically because I didn't have, I didn't know anybody else. Right. And, uh, and uh, he and I were, you know, it was us and a couple of neighborhood guys. And But no, back in Huntington, New York, it was, um, you know, all covers, stuff it was just like you know young guys learning how to play neil young and stones and talking heads and you know traffic and classic rock plus some of the newer music that we were getting into like specials and um a little bit of a clash maybe but uh you know it was still mostly classic rock back then mm-hmm. and was guitar right away for you or was there other instruments no i was always a guitar player i i, I started to pick up a little bit of hack my way through other instruments later, piano, mainly when we started recording, and I would have a keyboard around my house, just picking out chords and learning how to kind of play some basic cowboy chords to, to make to make the songs, or, or just embellish the recordings a little bit, like a Stooges part, like ding, ding, yep. ding, 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 you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> That's how it started. Yeah, I noticed, no, that, I noticed that on this record, actually. Yeah, ex- yeah. exactly. Yeah. I thought about that on this record. Yeah. No, I was a guitar player. In fact... They all, we all started as guitar players. Chris was a guitar player, and he switched to bass for the band. Um, mm. Tom had been a guitar player and then switched to bass for his cousin's band because his cousin played guitar. Um, they were a really great band. And uh, there was a drum set that was kept in Tom's parents' house, so he, he started to pick up the drums and really had a, a, a desire to learn how to play the drums a bit better. So it kind of all worked. Like we, By the time we were up in like Amherst and Northampton, Massachusetts, um, there's a lot of gear lying around a lot of times in these big houses that we all rented <clears throat> different people that played music. So we could easily kind of fool around on instruments. When did you first get the inkling that you might like to try writing a song? Music? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I ended up staying on guitar primarily. It's not like I was a much better guitar player than those guys. Um, I, but I was writing, I had written some goofy songs in high school, um, you know, sort of punk rock-ish, but more like Dead Milkman-y funny kind of punk rock, you know, like not real. Yeah, we didn't really take ourselves too seriously. But when we were playing parties, uh, which was all we really did uh, back in, in Medfield, Massachusetts, um, it, we had a couple, of, a couple of new songs. I was very influ- influenced by David Byrne, but I, I you know, so uh, there was some quirky stuff, um, especially during those couple of years in high school, I was really into Talking Heads, mm-hmm. and uh, so and I wasn't really, I was afraid of maybe trying to write political songs and that kind of thing. <laughs> so uh, that kind of stuff spoke to me, uh, artsy stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, so 
that's kind of why I stuck with guitar with Buffalo Tom because it was easier for me to sing this because I was I was the only one singing as well, and to, and and Chris only sang one song I think starting on our second record. I don't think he sang anything on our first record. If I'm not mistaken, I should pull up that record while we're talking. But go ahead. You mentioned Tom had a band pre Buffalo Tom with his cousin. Yeah, his cousin. So they were called um, first. They were called Plate of Mutton. And then they were called Skylar Hinkel for some reason. They changed their name to Skylar Hinkel, which was like S C H U Y L E R. You know, yeah, I think it was sort of like they. It was maybe influenced by things like Husker Du or something. And mm-hmm. uh, maybe I don't know. If, I don't know if Husker Du had. I mean, the Husker Du were definitely around. I'm not sure that they were fully aware of Husker Du. And this we were talking about like yeah, they probably were because it was a, it was like early '80s ish. But what let's say '80 mid '80s because when I went to go see them, they were played a mutton and I. I just remember, like, so I was a, bear in mind, I was a senior in high school, and it was winter break. My friends from Medfield had met this guy and some other guys up in, up in UMass Amherst, and um, we were going up to Andover, which is, you know, probably about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour away from, from us. So it, was, so it was Christmas break. We'd go up there, probably between Christmas and New Year's, and I'm in this guy's parents' basement. There's a bunch of guys I don't know, all dudes primarily, you know. Yep. And they're playing this amazing music that was somehow like, how do I describe it? Phil was his cousin. Phil Rattel is his cousin. He, he played like, he had this big David Bowie-like voice, like a big baritone you know, like with vibrato. And they played songs that sounded kind of like Bowie, The Cure, but somehow Jimi Hendrix a little bit. It was... It was, they were their own thing. I was so, it was like life-changing to me. Like, And Tom was this really good-looking guy with, you know, the sort of 80s long hair on his face. Phil had a beret and curly hair. <laughs> and they had this drummer, Tom Middleton, who's just more of a, like a towny-looking guy, like he could have been in YouTube, but with a mullet. And all that stuff, it was just so striking to me that these guys were not only writing their own material, but like, Jesus, I would buy this record tomorrow if it came out, you know? So Phil actually sings. Phil Rattel, his cousin, sings on oh, yeah. yep. uh, on our on our record. There. Yep. Yeah, because he was a hero of mine. Were you like into Boston hardcore or anything like that? No, I sort of bypassed hardcore. I mean, I, I didn't hate hardcore. I, I I liked it okay. I mean, I liked the Boston. This is Boston, not LA record a bit. Um, and we had like my brother. I think got the. Uh, who did Young Fast Iranians? The FUs or no, or the Freeze? Maybe um, there were a few Boston bands from that scene. I didn't go see any of that stuff, um, but I did go see like I did go see punk rock matinees that were sort of hardcore matinees, but they weren't necessarily hardcore. It was like Flipper right. and stuff like that. Stuff that was sort of more groovy to me. Like I, I, I never got that whole thing. You know, it was like I was never into that whole sort of maximum R&B scene, the Discord scene too much. A little bit of that later, like the stuff that got more interesting to me. I was always more of a more of like sort of an uh, of an art school freak, I think. You know, like I was into I was into stuff that was different, but not like loud and fast and hard for just like Husker Du when they I, like I wasn't I, I got into Husker Du's earlier stuff retroactively after getting into Zen Arcade. I mean, Zen Arcade has some of that stuff, and that and that record from start to finish was one of my biggest records in my life. But um, it was because it had some melody and groove to it, and and sort of references to classic rock and stuff. What was the idea when you when you went to Amherst? What were you going to go to to university 
for? Oh, I was just lucky to get into school, A, because I was such a mediocre student. I, I wouldn't get into UMass Amherst today. I mean, I was sort of like borderline back then. I, I, was, a, I was a smart kid, but I was just, um, I was just, uh, I hated school. I, but, but moving to that little town in Medfield from the bigger town in Huntington probably really saved me in that way because it was a, a small school. You couldn't hide. Uh, the teachers were really engaging. It was a community that really valued education. So I, I, I matured quite quickly, but still probably was just like, like I said, just just barely able to get into this. But it, there was no other school I wanted to go to. I, I really wanted to go to UMass Amherst because I had been going up there. It was a big state school, really good school. And to, the, to this, now it's even better school. But it was a great school. You could really kind of take a lot of different courses. It felt like a little bit of an urban experience within a rural setting because it was so big and skyscraper dorms and stuff. So my idea going there was just to hook up with this group of friends, but also to sort of like, you know, get serious a little bit about my studies. But I, I didn't know what I wanted to study. Like I, if I was more driven musically, I, I, I wouldn't say driven. If I, if, I, if I was less apt to be swayed by, say, my parents' pragmatism, who were very supportive to this day from start to finish about my music stuff and anything else I do. But they were like very pragmatic and they were like, well, going to Berkeley College of Music? I mean, are you that good? Are you really going to, you know, you know, you know what the chances are? And so that pragmatism, I, I feel that's that way today. Um, and it probably would have been a stupid move for me to go to Berkeley um, because back then it was very much like jazz snobs and, and like people that could really shred. And I wasn't that guy. Um, I was more of a punk rock player, so yeah. I wanted to go and hook up with a band. I wanted to, I wanted to get music going, but I was just going to study like liberal arts, which is what I did. I started with like communications major and minored in like comparative literature and and sociolo sociology. So I just took as many different courses as I could, and you know, if, if you if, if sorry, if Buffalo Tom hadn't really started getting going at UMass by the time I graduated, which we did, I probably would have continued on in postgrad because I loved academia. Mm -hmm. I think Buffalo Tom formed around 86? Yeah, we formed in the fall of 86. Were there like demo recordings done between then and, and 89? Yeah, so in fact, our our first debut record it grew, grew out of demos. So we first did that like Deep in the Ground and there were some other songs like you know, mostly songs that were kind of continuations of what I was writing with my teenage high school band, who kind of carried over into college, but we were all in, like my brother was in that band, so he was still in high school, so we were all in, in different geographic places and, and, and figurative places in our lives, so we barely ever got together. But that band, which was called the Rambunctious Llamas, <laughs> uh, played, before Buffalo Tom played, we were playing in some basement where... Mascus came in, Jay Mascus from Dinosaur Jr. and and some friends, and that's kind of I, I kind of I had already met, I had actually met Jay as a senior in high school when I went up there visiting my friend Jay Tallerman, who was from Medfield, who took the photos on that first Dinosaur record, um, who's still one of my dearest friends. So so some of those songs were you know discarded, of course, but then some of them survived, and and I was sort of always writing. So, like for example, the song on our debut album, "Impossible," was written probably when I was like seventeen or eighteen, when I was still kind of transitioning out of the band, and still. So I, you know, I was like Buffalo Tom basically started with Chris Colburn and and myself in a in a bedroom with a four track recorder, just playing acoustic guitars, and so that was one of the first things we recorded was an acoustic version of of "Impossible." And then Tom, because Tom was away, 
he was a, he was uh, taking a semester off or something. So when he came back, I guess it was that fall. Uh, maybe Chris and I started that summer. Oh no, because I was in New York that summer. Anyway, um, blah blah blah. You know, uh, it, it kind of all grew out of that. But but then we started when Buffalo Tom really got going. We went to, we went back to this hometown, you know, sort of demo studio, home studio. Uh, in this guy's parents' basement, and that's when we recorded some of those songs. But nothing that really made it on the record. I think we recorded, well, except Deep in the Ground. I think everything else was started at Fort Apache in the, the original Fort Apache studio in Roxbury, really rough neighborhood of Boston, which we started doing in bits and spurts, like even before Jay was involved, Mascus. So we went there. In fact, the first guy to record us was Tim O'Hare, and Tim O'Hare went on to do Sebado and a bunch of other great bands. But Tim was actually in Tom McGinnis's cousin's band with him that when it grew into the second iteration. So if anybody's if anybody's still following along, uh, they they had played together before Buffalo Tom. So so Tim brought us in there. So we did like probably two or three songs over the course of a weekend. And on the basis of that, we kind of got signed to this Dutch label who funded more demos, which really were the, the, the basic tracks and, and I think finished tracks of, of probably half this record. And then I, I'm jumping ahead here, but that's, that's when we sort of brought Jay in. So we came, came back to Fort Apache and he, he recommended we work with Sean Slade. And, you know, so it was kind of an iterative thing. This Dutch label is Megadisc? Megadisc, yeah. yeah. And was Jay the connection to SST? Yeah, so we had kind of gotten a deal going, not a very good deal, I should say, but a deal nevertheless with Megadisc. And uh, we're still on very friendly terms. We're lifelong friends with the guy that gave us this, you know, less than ideal deal, but it was a deal. It was put on, put on a record. And, you know, to this day, the Benelux countries are still our biggest market. So uh, no harm, no foul. But, um, Jay said, you know, do you want to talk to Greg Ginn about, uh, you know, I think Greg would be interested in signing. I don't know how the conversation went because Jay wasn't very <laughs> conversational. <laughs> but I, I think it was his idea. We went to CMJ Fest in New York, which was one of these conventions, you know, College Music Journal. Back when that was a really big deal. Yep. And we sat down for coffee or lunch with Greg Ginn, who was even less talkative maybe than <laughs> Jay somehow. So the two of them, us and our sort of new manager, Tom Johnston, who was kind of working with Lemonheads and Galaxy 500 at the time and Bullet La Volta. So I think, yeah, we're like, hey, he's like, yeah, I'll just put it out in America. And we worked out a deal for that. And it actually came out in America. I think he had America in the UK. Mm. Okay, well, you just referenced Jay's infamous, you know, <laughs> I don't know, poor communication skills. How was he as a producer? So just to backtrack a little bit, so I, when I met Jay uh, as a senior in high school, clearly just going up to UMass itself was intimidating to me from this high school. And everything had changed so fast in my life from 16 to 18. It was like, you know, two different towns. And now I'm up at UMass and with these friends. And it was a bit overwhelming. And there's Jay. And Jay had kind of this um, Nick Cave in the, in the birthday party look, you know. Yeah. He had this sort of like scraggly longish hair he had like necklaces on and he was really cool and you know the people that say the least are the people that sort of hold the most power in any kind of dynamic as far as i i can tell and i'm babbling all the time like i'm babbling now and jay jay was just like hey i you know and but i just thought he was like striking presence and then um they were just getting that first record out and i loved it but um I didn't love it half as much as when 
you're living all over came up and that that to me was life changing mm -hmm. but jay was um jay was like so you know we had started to fool around with some equipment as i said and some and some of it was jay's like jay's drums i think just he's like hey you know you guys can borrow my drums you know he was really friendly with chris and and tom, he, lo he liked tom a lot for sure you know they were just we were all just kind of like chill college kids that you know it was we were all going to the same shows so we would definitely be you know three of the guys that would be in the audience for of maybe 50 for dinosaur jr at umass and they were so incredibly loud like they are now but even crazier because it was smaller venues with the same equipment basically <laughs> um but i just found those shows so um engrossing so jay was like you know i think jay really wanted to kind of get into production like he was really fascinated by the studio and we were like look at what this guy did with his records like nobody makes records that sound like this like yeah we you know our little demos were like you know you can't you know i'll don't touch the board you know i'll do this no you don't need to play in a big amp you could play in a small amp because it's being which stuff was very sent you know made sense but jay's like fuck that you know it's like it was like the raw power mixes you know the solo just came up here in the mix up in your face and um so the fact that he was doing that was like, oh, let's get between, let's get a guy between us and the studio guys. Mm -hmm. But the thing is about Fort Apache was like, the lunatics were running that asylum anyway. None of those guys knew what they were doing, and they were all like, fuck yeah, you know, doing bong hits and turning up Marshall hit Marshall amps, and they had posters of Iggy Pop smashing records on the wall. They were doing Volcano Suns there and, and throwing muses. They were doing not mainstream music at all. Like there was hardly. I don't think there was any mainstream band that came through there. Mm -hmm. At that time, Pixies were just starting to get going, Blake Babes, Lemonheads. But it was like we were sort of like the second, in our terms, from our perspective, we were kind of like the, the younger guys, kids coming out of all that. It was like before all those bands that I mentioned, which are my generation, it was really these bands like Volcano Suns, which had grown out of Mission of Burma and Big Dipper and all these cool sort of artsy bands. And the Pixies, who were up at UMass, Charles and joey but we didn't know them up there at all like they formed in boston after they left so so but jay was like uh he's like you know at that time i think i was back to using i i, I was a tube amp kid and but then um when i got into buffalo tom i had sort of grown out of this jangly thing buffalo tom grew out of this sort of like you know, REM-ish, uh, the police, talking heads, we're all using really clean sounds. And I, so I went for a, Joel, a Roland uh, JCM120, JC120 amp, which is a very clean, solid-state amp. Sounds very, you know, pristine. Yep. So any distortion was kind of weird. So he's like, instead of like trying to get your distortion out of this stupid amp, let's go back to these old Marshalls and stuff, which is kind of what I grew up with, like the PV versions of those amps, you know? Yeah. So he was very encouraging with that and getting, just doing whatever. He's like, whatever. Do you do you want to do another guitar track on top of these other six guitar tracks? Go ahead, you know? Like, and uh, but it was very. There, there was no, there was no friction. Everybody, Sean, Tim, we were all like on the same. We were all pretending to know what we were doing and none of us knew what we were doing yeah well i mean any other engineer at a normal studio probably would have told jay like you can't do that you can't like hit a pedal <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. go from a clean to a to an overdriven sound like on the fly that has to be yeah i mean in, i mean to, to me one of jay's <laughs> one of jay's main innovations was extreme dynamics like yeah. It, including on that first record repulsion or whatever and um 
it you know all a lot of bands had dynamics and and a, and a lot of bands had 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 loud not, not i shouldn't say a lot some bands had had those sort of big d- dynamic sweeps live but it was it was sort of before the quiet loud quiet thing yeah. really kind of took off the pixies were starting to get were doing the same thing uh everybody was sort of on that path uh i think who could do it kind of done a little bit of it but they were usually tended to be one speed or the other or i shouldn't say speed but one sort of dynamic or the other so that was kind of cool i mean you know to me i loved neil young so much as a kid and seeing jay take kind of that like to me he sounded like neil a little bit guitar wise and vocally but it was also like hendrixy um he would solo without worrying if there's any rhythm guitar under he would just solo over the bass of course the bass lou was doing sort of this yeah. rhythm guitar on the bass so we're all filling in dynamics but so that one was really fascinating to me like to hear but to hear that on a record was truly that's where guys were like no you can't do that because it was still the days of vinyl and you know if you went crazy dynamically the needle would jump off the right. freaking record you know and and so mastering guys would have a nightmare with that stuff but um, it's funny to think of these guys in the studios these engineers still have that mindset because everybody was already making fun of the old days when the Beatles would go in and the guys would be in the lab coats you know <laughs> whatever <laughs> you know you, you we would we would have thought we were all past that but um, I don't think we were but the Fort Apache studio kind of situation was not like the old it wasn't like across town on Newbury Street where the cars had a, had a recording studio called um, Intermedia that became synchro sound that was like where the Berkeley cats went and where like the metal dudes went it was like really they were all trying to go for that big FM sound. Where it was we we didn't think we were going to be on any radio station at all ever. Never mind, you know, commercials, the commercial radio. Do you know what the first Buffalo Tom show was, or some of the first shows? Yeah, so the very first one was we were actually tongue in cheek. We called us. We went to a folk open night thing, and this grew out. I think this is when Tom first showed showed up back with Chris and I. So Chris and I were doing this acoustic stuff up in his room. And then uh, Tom showed up and started playing congas that were lying around. So we were doing literally, we were doing the Richie Haven song "Freedom" that he play, that he opens up yep. in the Woodstock <laughs> as a cover, and some of our songs, "Impossible." But we so we went to this open mic night at um, the Iron Horse, which is a, a folk club, basically a singer songwriter type place um, in Northampton, uh, which is what the town we were living in next to Amherst. And it was we went we we tongue in cheek build ourselves as the Buffalo Tom Trio, you know, kind of like the Kingston Trio as a folky thing. And then uh, like hey, everybody here's the Buffalo Tom Trio. So we're playing acoustic, but we're trying to rock out a little bit. <laughs> did the name grow out of that kind of as? Did you just pick that because you needed a name, no, or were you already I, Buffalo Tom? That's a good question. I think we were already Buffalo Tom. So that must not have been our very first gig because the reason we had the name Buffalo Tom is because we, we needed a name for a gig. So I think that might have been a battle of the bands, which was a, at a place called Katrina's, which um, which was <laughs> it was a real roadhouse between Amherst and Northampton uh, in a town called Hadley. <clears throat> and they had it was kind of a metal joint. It was so metal that they actually had a snake pit built into the floor. <laughs> and um, we I think the guy that had recorded our demos, maybe, or some guy we knew, I think it was the guy that recorded our demos, was one of the judges, and he, he voted against us, <laughs> and we lost. <laughs> He's like, you guys need more polish. <laughs> Is it true, the, the story that gets passed around, that it's a ma- the name's a mashup of, or a, a nod to Buffalo Springfield? 
Yeah, I think so. I, well, I think it was started out as like our friend was just trying to come up with with names, and we were all we were all um, sitting around a table, and and uh, I think Buffalo Bill and the so and sos came up because I'm Bill, and right. and, and uh, we're like, no, let's not name it after Buffalo. I don't want. He's like, I, I'm like, I'm like, I don't want it to be named after me, let because I'm singing. Let's name let's name it after Tom. Like it's called Buffalo Tom. So mm-hmm. uh, it was just a stupid joke, and we but we liked the resonance of Buffalo Springfield. Like I said, I was a huge Neil Young guy. And um, I think this Buffalo, you know, we were, it was a sort of a, it was sort of a, an era where the big hairy sort of animal thing, dinosaur or whatever else, there was some other sort of hairy, beastly, it wasn't like kind of the big grizzly bear and, and teddy bear and, and antlers and deers and stuff that happened in the 2000s, but it was similar. Yeah. Now, all the songwriting credits, I think, throughout the entire band's history, correct me if I'm wrong, are credited to to the three of you. What was the songwriting process? Like you mentioned, uh, you know, you and Chris getting together with acoustic guitars. And a lot of these songs, like on this record, for sure have that vibe. There's acoustic guitars on the tracks and they, they, they really sound like songs that may have been written by people just sitting around with, with acoustic guitars. Yeah, I, I think 90-something percent of our songs are written either by Chris or myself. And we don't sit in a room and write together, but we bring them in together and start fucking around with them. There's nothing sacred about our, our songs. Uh, in fact, there's been many songs that I've written where I was like, I felt like, oh, man, we really should. That should have been a Buffalo Tom song. I just wish that Buffalo Tom messed around with it to where the other guys liked it enough to do it, you know? Um, so, like... One of our one of the songs that always jumps to mind that was kind of a real band writing process was this song "Wiser" from our like 1996 or seven record Smitten, where I had brought in something that was radically kind of different from what it became, and a lot of that was just that really took a lot of work to get it to where it was. And Chris adds this whole sort of counter melody. So rather than worry about like who wrote what and who added what to a song, and basically look, we're all in this together. All every dollar into this band and every dollar out of this band should be split equally. It was kind of a real communal thing like that. But when it comes down to final decisions over a song, it's basically who brought it in. Like, and we're we're still. In, I'm going into the studio tomorrow, and we were in the last week, and it's still kind of the way. Like, we're really, and, and as we've gotten older, we're even better at like taking other people's. I, at least I can speak for myself, taking other people's input and criticism, and like not 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 getting so attached to a song that you're like, you can't let it go a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, if it's coming down to, I think it should be this way or that way. Well, who, who's, the, who was the one that really brought it in? That's, that's who we defer to ultimately. Yeah. And what about lyrics? Like, will Chris hand you completed lyrics? Yeah. Yeah. And we still, we're tweaking our own lyrics as we, as we, as even, even as we're recording, like we change lines here and there, but for the most part, and I, and I would say to the Buffalo Town guys too, back in the days when I was writing a lot of stuff, I'm like, look, if you don't like this, if you like this song, but don't like a lyric or something, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll revisit it and change it possibly if something bothers you, you know, but we don't really listen to each other's lyrics that closely until it's been playing a while. Like if something grabs us, we might, we might say, but we're kind of passive aggressive guys. We're not really like, um, hey, listen, can you change that line? It's really jumping out at me as a weird line. We kind of let each other do our thing, including Tom, our drummer. He would never really kind of step on one of our lyrics. He says he doesn't really listen to the lyrics until they're pretty much done. In fact, he was struck by the fact that I changed a lyric in the opening of a song just that we had recorded already mm-hmm. just recently. He's like, oh, you just 
changing like you're just changing the lyric. I'm like, yeah, because it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. So I've just been it's almost like a placeholder. But yeah, we just uh, we we like I said, most of the songs are written by by one or the other of us um, on our own for the most part. Uh, the song "Sunflower Suit." You shot a video for it. Uh, what can you tell me about that? Where where was the footage of the band shot? Looks so like yeah, we yeah. So we um, that's by by the time we filmed that, I don't know where I was living. I might have still been up at UMass Amherst, but Chris and Tom were living in Cambridge near Harvard Square in this um, apartment, and that's that's filmed up in the apartment on Oxford Street uh, in Cambridge by our friend Bob Hamilton, who did a lot of our artwork and T-shirts and went out on the road with us, kind of selling merch and that kind of stuff. The kind of call and response in the in the in the vocal, is that Chris and you, or or is that you doubling yourself in the studio? I think on this record, I was I did almost all the vocals. I think Chris did some. Um, there's got to be a pretty good amount from Chris, but on that, that's me singing "Follow Suit," "Follow Suit," "Follow Suit." Anyway, and then I think I think all the harmonies on that are me too. Hmm. Chris hadn't yet yet really started to sing much at all, you know. It, it took it took the next record for him to come out of his shell a bit. Did the song do anything? Did the video get played? Do you know? Yeah, I was sort of amazed. Um, it was back in the days of, you know, Peter Zaremba from the Flesh Tones used to host a show on MTV on like Sunday nights, even before I got out of college, called um, Cutting Edge, I think it was called, on, on, and then it became 120 Minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was the same time slot, um, and 120. 20 minutes so i think we were played on 120 minutes with that with that thing and it was so exciting to see ourselves on tv you know national tv and in fact i mean by so we started touring on that record eventually and we'd go out into the middle of uh, the Mar- of america and they have no college radio or whatever else yet they didn't get what the, the press or whatever the, the only way they found out about new music was mainstream outlets like mtv and a lot of those kids lived for that that time period where yeah. they could see stuff that was truly underground and really, you know, shoestring budget videos. And, 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 and that's kind of how I got turned on to some bands like soul asylum. I remember. And, yeah. um, and even the throwing muses, I think I might've first seen a video before I even heard the music. Yeah, I can relate. We had the equivalent up here in Canada and, uh, I much mean, music. Yeah. Yeah. But they had yeah. their neat shows as well that played, you know, the indie bands and, I mean, we even got less bands touring up here. Some of the records were harder to get up here, so that was a real lifeline for sure. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Canada's good that way with getting stuff nationally, just you know, out there. Okay, the next song on the record is called "The Plank." What can you tell me about that song? Do you, or, well, that, that's interesting. Okay, so that's one of the few songs that Tom brought in. So mm-hmm. Tom brought in those chords. Uh, he didn't bring in anything else but the chords. Um, those four chords um, so I mean that was really kind of the early days of us like let's I was even thinking we'll switch instruments you know right. we'll, the replacements were sort of doing that like well, I'll jump over here and you do that and we'll really collaborate but it, it turned into very quickly more of a traditional model of like a singer songwriter I think those guys were so shy I mean I was shy but I, I learned to be not shy by being in the band we were really three sort of somewhat shy guys, uh, certainly unassuming. But um, yeah, so Tom brought me pr- brought us that. I don't think he had any words for it. I, I came up with the I would walk the plank. 
I think it was just, you know, back back then I was writing a lot in, in journals and stuff. So mm. I would go and try to find stuff that matched up with the tenor of the song, the tempo of the song, the meter, where could I fit stuff in. So a lot of this record, especially this record, came from stuff that was already sitting there having been written that I was sort of matching up with, with music. Mm-hmm. I used to play in bands years ago and then had kids and kind of semi-retired and just recently started playing with one of my old bands with a bunch of my old friends. Before, when we were a band previously, it was usually one of us bringing in a completed song. And when we kind of restarted, it was more like someone just bringing in a riff or a verse or a chorus. And I forgot how much fun that is. Just banging, writing a song. Like, that's the best part about being in a band. It's not even playing live or anything. It's writing, being creative with your friends is just yeah, such a kick. yeah, and and so that's and and with Buffalo Tom, so it went from being that collaborative early on to maybe a little less, but it was it, it was always like I said, the arranging can very much be part of the, as far as the, as far as I'm concerned, the writing of the song. Mm-hmm. It's like what is, how does it end up finished, you know? And you know, I, I've written a lot about music, and so you write about arrangers and and. You know, an arranger can make a song yeah. from something, you know, like I'm t- I wrote this book about Leon Russell recently. He, he took this little song, you know, Feeling Groovy song from Paul Simon and made it into this big p- production for this band, Harper's Bazaar, yeah. which included a young t- Ted Templeman at the time. And it, it just makes the song like, a, you know, it, it's a whole different thing. And same, same with like the stuff he did with Gary Lewis and the Playboys. So I think, you know. It's funny. I, it's. I, I mean, they're definitely written by and arranged by in, in a traditional descent. But I, I, I we re, we really did think of it as writing together, even even though we weren't like just literally sitting on a bed across from each other, like the Lennon and McCartney in the early days. Okay, the next song is impossible. Of course, that's the one that has Jay <laughs> on yeah. the guitar. Did he ever get up on stage with with the band? Oh yeah, yeah. He's uh, yeah. He's been he, whenever he's around. In fact, if we're playing a gig, he he usually we we I, I I won't say it's countless times, but there's been probably a dozen times over the many years, where he's, including um, some of our more recent shows. Um, I will say probably like eight, 18, 19, He caught up with us and played. Um, there's some video on YouTube of him doing a fade into you with us by the by Mazzy Star and. We did Cortez with him, Cortez the Killer, uh, but yeah, back then I don't know. I, he want, I think I think he wanted to keep it more um, discreet back then. So, or maybe we did. We didn't want to look like too much. Like we were riding on Jay's coattails, which we kind of were. So we, I think we credited him as Monty Rose on the album cover, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> or maybe this Bird Brain. One of them. We it must have been Bird Brain because we were listening to Mont Rose uh, in the studio to get psyched up. Well, I mean, like I read a lot of reviews of this era of the band, and you do get compared to to Dinosaur Junior quite a bit. Does that is that something that bothered you at the time? Um, no, I mean, here's how I here's my evolution with it. Back then, if I if I can remember correctly, I, I remember like thinking, okay, bring it on. Clearly, uh, we're using Jay as a producer. Where we grew up, you know, we we grew up as we didn't grow up. I mean, we we were fans of theirs friends of theirs they they had already been out there doing shows even in europe before we got going so we kind of expected it to some extent and we were on sst of course so we expected that but then it became really like okay um 
Then it became this sort of lazy thing. Like it was okay for pretty much the whole first record. By the second record, I felt like, uh, well, come on, guys. We're I don't sound anything like Jay's vocally. Yeah. Uh, I th- you know by this by the second record, I felt like we were really kind of onto different sounds completely in some ways and doing different things. Um, but it kind of became this lazy journalist rock journalism you know whatever back then especially with fanzines and stuff it was just so lazy and but also back then what's important for people to know nowadays is that you couldn't just check out a band it's like you're reading reviews to try to find out what they sound like and a lot of people we were like okay well we want them to think we sound a bit like dinosaur jr or at least in that that realm because I mean, to me, to me, I was always felt way more direct. I I felt like we were going to get called out for being who's could do, uh, and we were to some extent. <laughs> who's could do fans, uh, uh, you know, who's could do junior or replacements junior, um, primarily who's could do because of the trio. But it was less that because of the J connection, I think. But I think if we hadn't used J, I think maybe we probably would have gotten nailed on the who's could do thing a bit more. Yeah, they were all big influences on us. Yeah. Um, but then, so yeah, but then it started to get annoying. Uh, I remember one time we were in Iowa City at Gabe's Oasis, kind of a famous uh, or infamous little stop on like an indie rock circuit, and this dude was just uh, in my face. We were we were outside after the show and. And he was drunk, and I was just like, okay, leave me alone, man. He's like, yeah. And we were like in a circle of people talking to us, just, hey, blah, 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 nice chat, nice show. And he was just on this circle, in a circle, and he just kept saying, yeah, dinosaur junior, imposters, you're imposters. And it went on for like a while. And he got a little too close to me, and I had a, I had a cup of, like a silo cup of beer, and I just fucking threw it in his face. <laughs> and he chased after me, and it became a thing. And that was sort of the, 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 the apotheosis of it all. And then I was like, okay, I can't let this get to me like this, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, like, I think a big part of it is maybe your leads on this record, for sure. Lots of feedback. Wah wah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, the next song is Five Hundred Thousand Warnings." Yeah, I don't really remember much about this song. This is like to me, this could have been on Bird Brain too. It kind of has that minor key, E minor thing, and it sounds very ominous. It's like me taking on this tone of like a, oh, I'm a badass kind of like five hundred. Just the name of the song alone, Five Hundred Thousand Warnings." But it's 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 sort of it's it's just. It's like sophomore, uh, sophomoric romance uh, gone bad type stuff, you know. <laughs> like uh, 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 it's still kind of, kind of almost high schooly lyrics to me, but it, it's kind of a cool riff. Yeah, uh, the bus. There's one with a, yeah. that still has those acoustic guitars in it, which just gives it that total classic rock sound. Yeah. So, so the bus, the bus was written. Um, that that's the song I wrote before Buffalo Tom. So I, in the summer before Buffalo Tom, so the summer of 86, I, I was living in New York for the summer, working down there. And so you hear the, the lyrics in there. I looked down, I stared down to Broadway. I rode the bus home. I took the subway. Those were all things I was doing that summer. And uh, Billie Holiday, I just picked up a Billie Holiday tape. So that's, that's that summer very much. And that was one of the first songs that Chris and I recorded along with Impossible. Racine, there's the the gimme danger trick we were talking yeah. about earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very Iggy. Yeah. Yeah. So I had gotten into I had gotten into the Stooges a bit the year before, I think maybe or or even maybe a little earlier than that. But 
I think I had gotten into Iggy first and then got into this Stooges, uh, Lust for Life, and then gotten back into it. So that's very much the raw power thing for sure. Uh, so that's another song that was written in New York, Penn Station. That's about a trans woman. Um, you know, her makeup's r running off like in the rain and, and, and about these fucking, you know, suburban dudes out on Island uh, beating her up in a parking lot of Kmart. And that was just all imagined stuff. But I mean, I obviously had seen living in New York. I've seen, uh, of course, a lot of drag queens and, and trans people and, and, uh, uh, um, and, and my, my uncle, by the way, was the one that brought me down to New York to work. So I, I was working for him. And he's gay. So uh, it was it was something that was very much uh, an awareness and awakening, not an awakening so much because I was sort of always somewhat awake to it. But it was like something I felt like I was also reading stuff like, you know, Burroughs and, and Selby, right. Hubert Selby Jr. So I wanted a bit of that in there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was a New York. That was a New York song, too. OK. In the Attic. In the Attic was sort of like a poem. Um, it's this idea. Uh, so that's a song that I definitely kind of put the, I think I must have had the words, and I don't know if I tried to fit music to the words or if I had music as well and fit the words to that. But the words definitely existed in some form before the Buffalo, before the Buffalo Tom song. It's this idea of um, the, how, the mind as an attic, right? Or the mind as a house. And and a ship and all this other stuff. So it was kind of very internal. Um, but I don't really remember much beyond that. It was, um, it was a song we didn't really, some of these songs we really never really played beyond our first couple of records. Once we started to get more material. Yeah. I was going to ask if any of these songs are in the set today. Mm, well, racing, we pull out from time to time bus mm. quite often, impossible quite often. Sunflower suit. Yeah. All those songs. We've not 500,000 warnings, N never the attic anymore. Um, but the attic is a good sort of like, that's a good sort of punk rock song. That's got a little bit of that dinosaur chunking thing going on, but yeah. I think it's more of a of a Huskadoo Zen arcade type song. Okay, Flushing Stars. I was going to ask about Phil Rattel, but you've you've mentioned him. Yeah, I love that song. I think it's a really good lyric. Um, like I like the line, "When her problems come, they come and go like winter time." I, I like a lot, you know, the, this image. I was very into strong imagery. You know, I was taking creative writing uh, poetry classes with James Tate and the, the great poet up at UMass. And this idea of flushing stars, I was into, I think I had already done acid or mushrooms a couple of times. So it's like this psychedelic imagery. We, we liked this idea, I think, without really kind of talking about it, of being, you know, this whole SST period with, where, where these bands that were, had grown out of the hardcore straight edge, in some, some straight edge, but most of them were had come out of just whatever, and, and we're getting into sort of this like almost sixties ish thing, like the Meat Puppets, and there was this band Always August who crashed with us, and yeah. they were kind of a jam band, and of course there was all this jazzy stuff that was going on. So we were part of that as well. I mean, this I, 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 we were all always into the sixties stuff. So this idea of like flushing when she combs her hair she flushes stars down her back it's a very psychedelic image so is sunflower suit of course yeah walk away so when i hear this song and most of this record i don't hear like a huge departure between it and the material on your later records like a lot of the stuff i read about the band or you you know you read reviews people say that you really changed your sound with especially you know later on in the 90s but i you know this just sounds like buffalo tom to me it's just Maybe it has maybe the guitar solos are a little 
Wilder. Yeah, well, a song like this, Walk Away, definitely could have been on Let Me Come Over, the yeah. third record. Or I mean, it's all about how you treat it. Like, how do you produce it? How does it? Yeah. How clean does it sound? I think a lot of people's ears get tricked by the production. Um, I think you're talking about the songwriting, which is what I feel as well. Like, I have a hard time sometimes remembering what, like most bands, what's what 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 record some of these songs were on. Um, but Walk Away to me is very much like a mountains of your head from from um from uh let me come over which are these sort of open g type things going up and down the neck very melancholy uh i don't really have much to say in that song aside from like you know basically it's like if i if i tried to break up with you would you just go that easy (laughs) easily you know (laughs) did that really just happen you i just said go i'm not into it i i want it was like it's this feeling sorry for oneself song uh and then reason why to me, that's my favorite solo on the record for sure. It's just, it's just this epic, <laughs> noisy solo. Yeah, yeah, that's Ted Leo uh, from Ted Leo when he plays with us. He, he likes to cover it. I've heard him cover that song oh, yeah. himself. He yeah. surprised me by covering it when I opened up for him solo once, and um, so he's played it with us too. And yeah, I mean, that's got my Catholic sort of uh, imagery in there as well—the thorn rip skull and jesus and all that stuff um i think again this is sort of psychedelia it's 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 got a bit of it's got a bit of like voodoo child kind of if i stand up next to a mountain kind of vibe to it you know this lyric this imagery this geographic this blood and but what is the reason why i couldn't even tell you what the reason why is it's some vague spiritual message i'm sending out to myself i think somehow i don't know what it is yeah uh bob's cover art did you give him direction or did he just present that to the band? So the actual print of the mutant guy on it, as we refer to him, is by Jay, Jay Tallerman, who did the photos on the on the Dinosaur Jr. record. Not all the photos. He did the photo of Artie and the Sun mm-hmm. uh, yep. on the first one. Yep. And um, so Jay was a photographer, but also a printmaker. And now he's a lawyer. Go figure. Um, but he was like a real sort of renaissance guy. So it was a, co- a collaboration between Jay and Bob, Bob was more the art director. Bob is, is to this day, that's what, kind of what he does. He's an art director, branding, uh, graphic artist guy. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and, and, and Bob really brought us all the way in, almost every record until more recent records. Um, so yeah, I think um, we were just going through ideas and going, oh, this, look, this could work, could we photograph this? Yeah, what if we put this on a rusty base, you know, back behind it, that kind of stuff. I, we were usually on the same page with artwork. We're like, oh, this could be a really cool thing. Yeah. The symbols on the front, the the syringe, the yin-yang, the, the teepee, etc. Does that 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 anything? was me. So I, I drew the logo and all that stuff. To me, it was like uh, as, a, as a, you know, recently turned on to, <laughs> um, pothead, you know, whatever. It was like you got the yin and yang, you got the cross. You got the, I think there's probably a Star David, there's a there's a, a hypodermic needle. To me, it was like equating all these things of like, how do we get through life, right? Like spirituality and drugs and blah, blah, blah. It's all part of this whatever gets you through the night kind of vibe. I don't think I had really thought this through very thoroughly. It wasn't like some high concept. It was just like, oh, here's something cool. I'm just doodling. And I think I had made the connection between all these things in my mind. I should say that you pointed this out, now that you pointed this out, that when on that tour, we were touring um, in Europe for pretty much first, certainly primarily. And 
we had a day off, so uh, we we decided to drive down to Paris because we just wanted to check it out. And we had some of those in the van, and we got pulled over at the border. And the the border cops in France were like like fascists, you yeah. know, like really hardcore. Yeah. And they opened up. They wanted to start searching our van, and they opened up that, and they opened up a box, and they see that, and they saw the hypodermic needle, and it was all over. We were there for like six hours while they took apart every part of our van and they strip searched us did a cavity search for for everybody except for me uh but yeah they were on it was like the french connection you know they're like unscrewing uh the panels in the van they thought they thought for sure we were smuggling drugs and everybody was looking at me with dirty looks like did we really need to have a hypodermic (laughs) needle on the on the album cover (laughs) okay well you just answered my what was going to be one of my next questions was what was the touring like for this record so um I think we had done a little bit of, like, goofing around in America, like the East Coast a little bit. Like, we had certainly gone down to Maxwell's and the Pyramid Club. But I can't tell you the chronology of it off the top of my head. But very early on, before we were headlining anywhere in Boston, we we were headlining over in England and and the Benelux countries especially. But we got all over Europe that first tour, which was the fall of, um, of 89, I guess. Uh, It was. It was the fall of 89. And we were there for like six weeks and some of it was being added on as we were there like the it was a booked tour but it was there was a lot of gaps and we were filling in the gaps with this paperclip agency out of nijmegen holland and we were so it was highs and lows because it was our first time ever off the east coast my it was my, my first time ever off the east coast and I think for Chris and Tom as well, I think Chris had been out to the West Coast, but mm-hmm. I had never even been out to the Midwest, never mind, you know, Europe. So we're over in Europe, and it was just mind-blowing to, like, wake up there, jet-lagged, you know, from a jet-lag nap, and go out and go down to get some shawarma and see, like, our posters for that n- the next night and in, of our album in, like, this foreign country, and then all that stuff that comes from the first time you go away from home. Uh, but it was also six weeks, which is a long time to be with mm-hmm. the same people. Um, and it was very extreme highs and extreme lows because not only extreme lows um, of being lonely and away from, like I was already, I had met my now wife the same fall that I met, that I formed Buffalo Tom. Like 86 was a big fall for me. And uh, so now I'm away from her. She was like, how am I going to, how, how are you, how, are we going to be able to, handle this are we going to be able to stay together it'd be long distance phone calls but then it would be like great gigs and then like nobody and then mm-hmm. you know like we're in the middle of germany just trying to you know we ran out of gas like all that kind of stuff that comes with the first tour and sleeping in horrible places right um, you know really filthy Squats. rooms above clubs and <laughs> yeah. stuff yeah and like hey you can come back in my place and yeah. i've got plenty of room type oh here here's the plenty of room on the floor yeah, but then like really beautiful things like here, come and stay at my parents' extremely beautiful house, and they fixed us breakfast the next day. So like crazy stuff like that. And but um, you know, it took a while for us to get going outside of Europe. In Europe, it seemed to sort of like kind of take off. It maybe plateaued around the, the next record a little bit. Like it definitely kept growing, but the trajectory started. To tr- and then let me come over. It just from there, it kind of kept going. Yeah. But in America, it was really we didn't really feel like we got much traction going like you know outside of certain places until our third record to fast forward when the band went on hiatus following smitten did you know that you would be getting back together eventually um well that's a hard question i think i was i personally 
was through with the band for the mm -hmm. time being. But we were never like big bridge burner type guys. None of us really were. Um, let's just it was just like let's just let's just get off this cycle, this train of like this merry ground of touring and recording and touring and recording because we weren't making we never struck it rich, you know. We never had a huge record, so it was a real working class thing, which meant we. Anytime we were off the road for more than like a few months, we were starting to go broke. And Chris worked. He Chris kept working. We, Tom and I had given up our day jobs uh, on our third record. So it was. It, I don't know. I, I. You know, we never. In fact, we never really stopped too much. You know, we stopped making records for a bunch of years, but we were still out there. The A sides record came out. The B sides record came out. We actually had a hit in the UK in like two thousand two thousand one with. Um, Going underground, covered by the jam. That was a top ten hit. So it was weird. Like we were still kind of out there, but we just weren't making records together until 2007 was the next one that came out. You did a number of solo albums. If people listening to this have never heard any of your solo albums, where would you point them to start? Well, if they're big Buffalo Tom fans, I I don't know where I would steer them. I mean, because they're all a little bit different than Buffalo Tom. But the most rock and roll one, I think. Is um, up is called Fireworks on TV with the band Crown Victoria. That was a real. We, I was really making a go for it. Like it's like, all right, here is my next group of songs. Like these aren't just side songs. These aren't just songs that didn't fit into Buffalo Town. This is like my next gr group of, of good songs. I think, mm -hmm. and it is a really good record. Honestly, with hindsight, I think it's a it's a very Stonesy record. My most probably Stonesy record, and for being a huge Stones fan, and, and as are the Buffalo Toms, it's, it's the most obviously that way. But I could see all those songs, almost all of them, as Buffalo Tom songs. Um, and then there's up here, around, made around the same time, which is more of an acoustic, introspective record. A lot of those could be, you know, Buffalo Tom songs as well. The first solo record is called Lonesome Billy. That's more of a weirdo little record that I did with the guys that became Calexico. They were in Giant Sand, Joey uh, Burns and, and John Convertino. Uh, so I went to Tucson. We I had these sort of homegrown songs that were like home home demos that were more country, more twangy, uh, that kind of thing. A little weirdo kind of stuff that definitely wouldn't fit into Buffalo. Um, but I, 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 I still do other side projects to this day. Yeah, The Bathing Beauties. Yeah, The Bathing Beauties. That was a, a record I did with, uh, with Chris Toppin. Actually, it grew out of a whole project with Paul Coldry, the producer, mm -hmm. Mike Leahy, who played with uh, Blake Babies and, and Tacklebox and some other bands, and uh, Dean Fisher, who's married to Tanya Donnelly and plays played in Julianne Hatfield 3. So it was kind of like a, not a super group. <laughs> it was just a bunch of people from, a, and, and me and Chris Toppin. So Chris Toppin was uh, a singer in this band called Fuzzy, and so she and I loved singing together. So even we couldn't really get much together with with the band. So we kind of continued that project on as a duo. And uh, and then I did yeah I did a record called Walt Whitman Mall, which is just me and some other guys. Um, a real solo record in 2013. The Needy Sons. Needy Sons is a side project with Mike Gent um, of um, of the of the Figs. He and I are real sort of almost brothers in a lot of ways, in the good and bad of that. But we have a real chemistry when we play together two guitars it's kind of got a feelies television sometimes stonesy two guitars interweaving kind of vibe um ed velasquez from uh the gravel pit uh and also he was in a band with mike jank called uh, the gentleman which was a big sort of hard fun hard rock acdc's you know kind of fun band like that uh so yeah they're all friends of mine going way back to the 90s and um 
uh, th- those are, it was mainly us three plus this drummer, uh, Eric, uh, Anderson. Is that what Ron and Keith call it? The art of weaving, something like that. Yeah. The ancient art of weaving. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. When did you first start writing about music? Um, I guess sort of when I was still in Buffalo time, I wrote like a, a, a column, uh, not, a, not about other music, but I wrote a sort of a, a, a letter from uh, the road to, to, um, melody maker. Uh, and it was, in the UK, the, the the press there it was it was about being on the road with my bloody Valentine. It was kind of a tour diary entry, mm-hmm. but it didn't really do much after that. When I when we finally st- got on that break, and my daughter, my first daughter was born, my first child, ninety nine. Then I was sort of looking for freelance things to do uh, while I was sort of a stay at home dad, and writing was was my my chief passion. So I started writing for um, some publications and online things like allmusic.com. And that led to um, you know me putting to, uh, together a proposal for The Exile on Main Street, 33 and a third book. So that was my first of three three books so far. Um, but I never really – I've, I've written uh, appreciations. Like I don't really write criticism. I write things that I – about things that – why I love them. Like why I love Stevie Wonder's songs, Makia Life was a gigantic – piece that I wrote for The Observer. I also wrote a big piece about Keith Jarrett's Cone concert. But I, for most of what I was writing about, you know, I was writing these big entries at allmusic.com, which are still there for about cer- certain songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also your Song of the Week project kind of is the is similar to that, I would say. Yeah, exactly. So uh, those were a, a mix of like, here's what's going on in my life. This is why this song came in to, you know, I was coming up with a cover every week to, to record at home on pro tools. And, um, it was, it sounds like a COVID project, but it happened, it happened in the, in the 2011 era, I think. Uh, And, um, I did a lot of them, 300 or something like that. So yeah, it was like, here's, here's what I'm thinking. Here's, or here's what I love about this song. Here's a funny story about this song. Like for example, I did a little mas- a cover of Little Mascara by The Replacements, and I talk about how Paul Westerberg came to a show of ours and how Juliana Hatfield was supposed to sing this song with us and didn't, stuff like that. The book you recently released on Leon Russell, tell me about that. Was that a pandemic project? It seems like it yeah. might have been. Yeah. yeah, that was a pandemic. I mean, it, it predated, the, the idea predated. I was, I've been looking, so my last book, before this came out in 2013 it's called rocks off yeah. and that was very much in the spirit of 50 it's called 50 tracks that tell the story of the rolling Stones. so that's me like interweaving their band history and biography with an appreciation of certain songs that i feel like are representative of certain eras um so that was a really fun project and then i was looking around for a new project with this agent that i got uh, in the wake of that and it took until you know it took like six years to find the right project because i i don't just write uh, full time, I want to do the projects that I, I love. So um, anyway, yeah. That long story short, that when he presented this is like the estate was looking, uh, the state of Leon Russell was looking for somebody to write about Leon Russell, and I said I would love to write about Leon Russell because to me, it was everything I could write about everything in rock and roll if I wanted to, and I kind of yeah. I kind of did, you know. Six, so it's five hundred something pages because uh, he really ran the whole trajectory, starting with he was started with. Jerry Lee Lewis, he, you know, blah, 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 went went through the Wrecking Crew and and Joe Cocker and Mad Men, an Englishman, Mad Dog's an Englishman, rather, and all the way, you know, to this big comeback with with Elton John in 2016. So, but I I was fascinated by the guy because I didn't really know 
what had happened to him in the intervening years. Like I wasn't a gigantic Leon Lifer fan, as they call themselves. Yeah. I was just a fan of certain things of his that, and I that I was like, well, yeah, where did this guy go? And that 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 part of the story is, it seemed to be. It ended up being more fascinating than I had even anticipated. Have you ever thought about writing an autobiography? Uh, I thought about it, but I mean, my life has not been that interesting. Honestly, it's like, uh, you know, it's all out there. It's like uh, I've never had any huge drama in my life, just normal drama. Uh, I think there'll be a come a time where I write about our era a little bit more, mm -hmm. like there's been times where somebody from uh, somebody I would consider a colleague, maybe a more con a successful colleague has, has it's come to across my desk and said, Hey, would you want to write about the memoir for so-and-so or, or write the book for so-and-so? I was like, no, I, I, it's just, it's there too. It's too close to home. I knew the guy, I know the guy, right, you know, right. I know the person, yeah. but I would love to write um, about my perspective of our era. Like, you know, there's this great book, um, our Band Could Be Your Life, which I'm sure you yep. know, you know about Michael Azarad. That really captures the sort of time running up to our our uh, time on that circuit. Like we come on sort of the end of that. Yeah. Uh, I would like to write a little bit more about like between there and and, and where the end of the 90s, like that promise of that, that whole arc of the 1990s. Like how did that all go wrong? Like, yeah. you know, I, all, all of these things eventually go wrong. It's all subjective. You know, it's like as soon as the accountants and the suits get their hands on it, it kind of goes wrong. So, and that was very much the story of the nineties. So it'd be a very short book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know the Leon Russell book just came out, but do you know what your next writing project is going to be? Uh, I'm 99% sure, but I can't really sort of talk about it yet because it's not done. But it's um, it'll be something a little bit more a little bit more contemporary, but maybe not uh, <laughs> not uh, the 90s per se. Yeah, and I don't know how much you can talk about this, but I've been you know going back and forth with you about picking a time that that works for both of us to to do this. And you've you've mentioned a few times, and I think you mentioned it earlier in the interview as well that you're in the studio. That's with Buffalo Tone. Yeah, yeah. So Buffalo Tom, uh, this would have been done long, long ago, if not for COVID, like a lot of other bands, we got held up by that. So we recorded our last one, uh, it came out in 2018, that's called Quiet and Peace. We recorded that at a place called Willie Mammoth Studios here with Dave Minahan, who was in the neighborhoods and played with Paul Westerberg and the Replacements reunion. Um, so Dave is a fantastic guy. He owns the studio, he's a great producer. So um, we've been recording this one with him as well. We kind of went into it thinking, okay, let's try to do an acoustic, you know, pretty much an acoustic record, but it's turned into not that. <laughs> I mean, it's, I would say it's a, li a lot more acoustic, but, um, you know, some songs are just plain up electric, straight up electric stuff. So um, it's an interesting record. I, I, I was, we're not done with it. So I, I'm not, I'm not far enough away from it where I even really have perspective on it. But yeah, I will say this, it's got a lot of Chris Colburn songs so far, which is uh, like, He's writing, writing, it seems more and more. But part of this was the pandemic. Like, we had all this stuff stored up. Uh, you know, we were kind of sending each other songs over the over those two years or whatever. Yeah. Hey, here's what I'm working on, and let's try to get to some of this. Yeah. Will there be shows? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, we played um, in April uh, in Lowell, uh, Massachusetts, which was part of this, like, you know, festival there. Um, we're playing in, um, in Medfield, the town that I moved to. It's our mm -hmm. first gig in our hometown. Uh, there, there used to be a mental state hospital there, um, uh, that's now an arts sort of center. And we're playing there in September 
and I'm playing a Stones cover band fun show in the Cape this summer and in July. But uh, Buffalo Tom will definitely be doing some more shows. I would say over the winter of uh, end of the year, beginning of next year. Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brent. I'm, I'm glad you uh, were patient enough with me to try to get this on the on the docket. <laughs> yeah. No. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Like I said, not just a lot of amazing, amazing info and content on the band and this record, but just about, you know, the underground music scene at that time. And when I'm listening to this record this week, I've had it for a, a, a long time. I haven't been a fan of Buffalo Tom. I'm, I'm not going to say as long as some of the other bands on SST, though, that are kind of lifers for me. I came to Buffalo Tom probably mid to late 90s. When I'm listening to this self-titled record and and the second one, uh, Bird Brain, I just hear so many amazing uh, references to this style of music at the time, whether it's obviously we'll talk about the Dinosaur Jr. relationship, but Uncle Tupelo, I hear the Doughboys, I hear Lemonheads, this scene, this sound, this vibe, I just love this era and type of music really got into this record this week it kind of makes you it kind of takes you back even if you've never even really heard this record before it has such a a 90 early 90s indie rock sound yeah well i was remarking to myself listening to it this week like it's produced by jay mascus and say what you will about jay as a producer this actually sounds like a record that would be produced by jay mascus a 100 percent. even the drum sounds the drum sounds sound like a record that Jay would have done. Like it sounds like Green Mind drums, you know? Yeah. It what a great fit. You know, um pure coincidence, but I was just scrolling through Facebook and it you know how like pages or whatever get recommended as sponsored ads? There was some page about grunge that it suggested the algorithm algorithm suggested to me and the, the kind of quote that you can read uh-huh. was from Tad Doyle and he's talking about Jay Mascus producing inhaler. Mm. And he's going, he's going, Jay pretty much slept through the entire sessions. I think that's that's a famous quote. He produced more Z's than anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a famous quote. I would, I would argue though, that this totally sounds like it was produced by, by Jay and for, and for a good result. I, I think this record sounds awesome. Well, and it doesn't hurt that it was recorded, you know, by those dudes at, yeah, yeah, um, they they had it dialed yeah. at this point, right? Okay, so a few things I want to talk about. Um, this early song, Deep in the Ground, uh, that's tacked onto versions of the album, that, probably the one you have as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so this was eventually reissued on Polygram, Beggar's Banquet. That's a super early track, maybe one of the earliest recorded uh, tracks before this album. Uh, it's the B-side to a 1989 single on this label, Calf Corporation, the song yep. Deep in the Ground. Yep. Um, which is a cool kind of uh, a cool UK label I'd never heard of um, before. This Calf Corporation they specialized in seven-inch singles in limited runs of five hundred, with kind of a focus on demos, outtakes, or live versions. Anyways, to people who don't have that this later version of the Buffalo Tom album, check out the song "Deep in the Ground." You can hear it on the streaming version of this album. Um, it's a total garage rock ripper at first i thought it was maybe chris coburn singing it it doesn't sound like bill but 
Bill confirmed to me that it's him singing. And also tacked onto the reissue and digital version is a killer stripped down cover of the Rain Parade song, Blue. Yeah, and that is off of the uh, Sunflower Suit single that came out. Yeah. And it's uh, it's an acoustic version with banjo and tambourine. It's It says on the, uh, the single, it doesn't say this on the CD reissue that I have where that's tacked on. On the single, though, it says with Anne Slynn and Laura St. Clair on that track. Um, just talking about that song, Deep in the Ground, though, I love Chris's Lemmy sounding bass. He's oh, got yeah. like a got like Lemmy bass going on on that song. Awesome. Yeah. That single that you mentioned, Ryan, it also has tour dates on the back of it. Yeah. Um, uh, Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, Belgium, UK. It specifically says West Germany, and the months are October, November. So this would have been right when the Berlin Wall came down. They were probably maybe even around for some of it. And I, I found some some stuff about the tour. And he mentions that they the agency that booked the tour was Paperclip. Pretty sure that's the agency that booked a lot of the, the stuff that we've gotten to from this era. Like, you know, that um, Universal Congress of tour, I think was probably Paperclip um, that they did with Alternatives. Um, I know that uh, Buffalo Tom played a few dates on this tour with Tar Babies, several with Rollins Band. And uh, the one in London was with Cosmic Psychos because I found a review of it by Everett True. Uh, he briefly in the interview mentioned his brothers. He has three younger brothers. They're all involved in music. Kind of reminded me of Roger Miller, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Bill's brother Paul passed away earlier this year. Condolences to Bill and, and to the rest of Paul's friends and family. Paul had a band called Cold Water Flat that also came out of UMass in Amherst. They released two albums in the early to mid-90s. Uh, the second self-titled one on, was on MCA, also recorded at Fort Apache. Check the video on YouTube for the song Magnetic North Pole from that album. Uh, it, it's uh, Paul was the, the guitarist vocalist. Uh, it's not a huge stylistic departure, actually, from Buffalo Tom. It's tuneful, guitar-driven, early 90s indie rock with big choruses. If you've never heard that, Cold Water Flat, check that out, Ryan. On it. Their brother Scott played with Graham Parker. Presumably that's how he eventually joined the Figs on keyboards. The Figs were Graham's backing band for many years. I could have that wrong, but I'm only guessing. The Figs were also Tommy Stinson's backing band for a tour. Not sh sure if Scott was in that version of the Figs or not. He has solo mater material you can hear on his band camp along uh, with the album by his band The Russians. That's got a bit of a 60s psych feel, uh, also some T-Rex vibes. It's really great. Scott's got an amazing voice and can, can really write a song. He's also a prolific podcaster. He produces, co-writes, and scores this podcast about a girl, which I actually stumbled across a, a while back and, and have checked out a few times. They describe it as a series about women whose stories have long been eclipsed by the legends of their famous partners. I think I found it because of the Anita Pallenberg, Keith Richards episode. Um, Scott also ran a studio called Moon Tower in Cambridge for 14 years, played on tons more projects, lots to check out for Scott. And then the third brother or fourth, Tom Janowitz is a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, he, he played in a project called Soda Frog. Scott plays on that album. Uh, the album's called Hang the Moon. 
kind of acoustic rootsy rock. He has some solo stuff under his own name. He kind of sounds like an acoustic Elvis Costello or something like that. Uh, there's a band camp for, for, uh, for Tom also. It has that Soda Frog album on it. Just lots of talent in that family. Some of Bill's other projects we touched on, Bill Janovitz and Crown Victoria. The, that's uh, the album he mentions, Fireworks on TV. That's, um, you know, like I said, he mentions that as a, as a possible entry point. Uh, when I asked, it's got some great driving rockers. I was listening to it all week. Really great songwriting. There's a song on there called My Radio that's straight out of the replacement songbook, Ryan. You dig that record for sure. His Show People record with Chris Toppin of Fuzzy, that's on streaming. It's super excellent. Chris is also a great singer, and her and Bill's harmonies are just spot on. She also sings lead on half the album. Uh, Just an amazing voice. If you're in the mood for some Americana, I can't recommend this Show People record enough. Came out in 2007. Hopefully they'll make another. Um, His band, The Needy Sons, he also shares songwriting with... uh, and guitar and vocals with Mike Gent of The Figs. Their one and only album came out in 2016 called Vis-a-Vis. It's streaming and it's it also totally rules. Kind of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers-esque. It's stonesy. Mike Gent can really belt out a tune. Um, there's also Bill's multiple solo albums. He's on this one-off project called Pearson Parker Janowitz, The Lost Songs of Lennon and McCartney from a Window in 2003. Pearson is Kate Pearson of the B-52s. Parker is is Graham Parker. These are unreleased Beatles songs. Uh, Robin Zander of Cheap Trick guests on a few songs. It's great. Uh, Bill's uh, Bandcap has all kinds of neat things on it. This funky, rockin' instrumental project he did called Skunk. A live lockdown acoustic set with solo material, Buffalo Tom songs, a Dylan cover uh, that he plays piano on, the Matt's Little Mascara cover, of course, there's his books. I, I haven't read his new one, his Leon Russell book yet, but it's getting rave reviews. But I do have both of his Stones books, and they're both excellent. Uh, there's the 33 and a third book he did for Exile on Main Street. And then Rocks Off, 50 tracks that tell the story of the Rolling Stones. I easily own and have read more books about the Stones than any, any other band. And that one's probably in the top 10, that Rocks Off book. And th- there are some great ones. Um, he's really good at writing about music and I love the stones. So, so I'm all in on his, his stones books for sure. There's just so much more with Bill. Just Google his covers of the week. There's four volumes. You can hear his cover and read his piece on the song, like songs like the clashes straight to hell, little mascara, hardly getting over it. He covers a bunch of Neil stones, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, some of the, People listening to this podcast for sure already know this, but if you want to spend a few hours getting blown away, you know, by this, this amazing artist, and I would say underrated artist, you know, check, dive into Bill's discography, just super impressive, multifaceted artist. So yeah, we've mentioned a few times that Jay produced this record. If you've never searched Jay Maskus and Buffalo Tom on YouTube, Uh, You should. You'll find tons of footage of him on stage with the band playing Buffalo Tom songs like Sunflower Suit, uh, The Bus, Impossible, um, all off of this album. But the covers Bill mentions, Fade Into You and a ripping version of Cortez the Killer, which Chris Colburn 
uh, sings lead vocals on. You can find all that on YouTube. It's really great. Uh, a few other things I'll mention about in relation to this record uh, before we get into it. This Dutch label Megadisc sounds like, if I understood Bill correctly, uh, they signed a deal with them first. Uh, they funded the demos, which kind of morphed into this album. Wally Van Minendorp was the label manager. He was in a Dutch electronic band called Mini Pops. Buffalo Tom went on to work primarily with Beggar's Banquet, but Megadisc was still involved to some degree, I assume, in the Dutch market, right up until the, the band's first hiatus. And uh, I mentioned the few reissues about this, this record. Uh, Beggar's Banquet in the early 90s, again in 2004, and in 2019 for Record Store Day as a limited edition run of 1,200 on clear vinyl gatefold uh, cool updated artwork and it's that release was on this canadian label network yeah there's actually some pretty strong ties between buffalo tom and canada or canadian artists there's this one promo disc that i have buffalo tom 75 minutes with this came out in 1995 on beggar's banquet but if you look at the liners in there there's a bunch of quotes by people about how much they love Buffalo Tom and almost all of them, maybe even all of them are Canadian artists. Like for example, there's a quote from Bill Priddle from Treble Charger, Mike Trebleco from the Killjoys, John Critchley from 13 Engines, Mark Milne from Tristan Psionic. Um, and then there's this quote from Jay Ferguson from Sloan. He says, there's this band from Halifax called Leonard Conan who are huge Buff Tom fans. I drove from Halifax to Vermont once to give Buffalo Tom one of the band's t-shirts. Hope they liked it. But there's all these little quotes mm -hmm. in here. It's almost, I'm pretty sure it's all Canadian bands. There's there's definitely a lot of love for Buffalo Tom in Canada. Oh man, I'm sure I mentioned this when, when I was writing my thoughts on the tracks, but there's a definite like early 90s can rock vibe to these songs. 13 Engines, Doughboys, for sure, for sure. Yep. Hey, I've got a spiel for you out of this other Buffalo Tom record that I have. This is the B-Sides compilation okay. on Buffalo Tom. So a bunch of B-Sides. This is actually from 2002. This came out on Beggar's Banquet. But there's this great quote in here from Tom. And uh, he actually writes a couple of pages of liners. But I love this quote because it's really getting at what you and Bill were talking about. Uh, with respect to being in a band, like the best part about being in a band. So check this out. Here's Tom from the uh, B-Sides, a collection of B-Sides and rarities, Buffalo Tom comp. As the one guy in the band that contributes no real original song ideas to the group, I have to admit that it sometimes felt a bit awkward telling the others that I didn't particularly like a song they had written, especially that brand new one that they really love. But you come to realize over time that these decisions are not only part of being in a band, but essentially define what a band is. Yes, a band is part pseudo-democracy, but mostly it's a bond of trust, a willingness to respect someone else's opinion, understand their tastes, and entrust them as kind of a personal editor. Though many groups appear to be bands on the surface, following that formula put forth by the Beatles, Many of them are really dominated by one member, usually the main songwriter actually calling the shots with the other guys most often existing in secondary roles. In this sense, Buffalo Tom is, was, a real band, 
perhaps sometimes to a fault, but this is probably why the group remained the same original members for so many years. Everyone felt they had an important part to contribute to the whole, to this constantly evolving thing that we called Buffalo Tom. The Bastards even went and used my name in the band's title, so even the non-songwriting drummer felt an extra personal connection to the group, even if it did just start as a joke. Right on. Well, yeah, I mean, what's songwriting? You know, if, if you're working something up in a practice space and everyone's contributing, I'd say those lines get blurred sometimes. For sure. Yeah. Hey, let me read you a spiel out of the Trouser Press that kind of gets at the, uh, the Dinosaur Jr. connection, and I've got something to say about that. So here is, this is out of the Trouser Press Guide to 90s Rock. I've got like six versions of the Trouser Press, but this one's from the 90s one. Here's Ira Robbins. Although Buffalo Tom began with the stated intention of capturing the din of a guitar army, the Amherst, Massachusetts trio later did an about-face to invoke the unplugged sound and fury of a small platoon of folkies. The band's penchant for melody-laced amps-on-stun racket and its chummy relationship to Dinosaur Jr.'s Jay Mascus earned a nickname of Dinosaur Jr. Jr. from smart-ass rock critics. But that does capture the essence of Buffalo Tom's early records as well as anything. The debut kicks up a satisfying squall as guitarist Bill Janowitz's earnestly overwrought vocals vie to be heard over the six-string turbulence of songs like Sunflower Suit and 500,000 Warnings. Mascus, who co-produced the album, contributes lead guitar to Impossible. So here's what I have to say about the Dinosaur Jr. comparisons for this album and the second one, Bird Brain. So what? So what? I don't think Buffalo Toms sound like Dinosaur Jr. I can understand why they were compared. And obviously the Jay Mascus relationship means that, that it's going to be a really easy comparison. But I love all the music like this and I want more. Um, you mentioned in the interview that it could be because of the solos. Yeah. Um, and certainly having Jay on the record and produce it is is pretty obvious. But I, I mentioned a bunch of bands that Buffalo Tom remind me of, and I just want more of that. I don't think any of them are like each other. That's the style of music that I really like. Dinosaur Jr., Doughboys. We mentioned 13 Engines. I'll even throw Sloan in there. Yeah. Um, I love this stuff. So I, I can understand why people reference Dino, but um, these first two records, especially for me from Buffalo Tom, they stand on their own. Well, I mean, how many times have we railed against that on this show? Like with Zoog's Rift constantly getting compared to Frank Zappa in every single article. Or Blast and yeah. Black Flag. Yeah. I'm like, who cares? I don't know. That's, that's what a genre means, that there are several people who have a similar type of, you know, ethos or sonic sound, right? Well, that's, it's that's okay. Raised on classic rock for starters. Oh, for sure. You know? Yeah, I think Bill's vocals, though, really make Buffalo Tom stand apart. Big time. I, I understand why, like with lots, layers and layers of guitars, and the way that this song, like I said, this sounds like sonically like a Dinosaur Jr. record. The drum sounds in particular, the guitar, I get that. But I do think that the song structures, uh, Bill's vocals, it's Buffalo Tom. Well, I think they were maybe even using some of Dinosaur's gear. Probably, yeah. 
And then I've got one more quote here from Gimme Indie Rock. And of course, this is the book by Andrew Earls, 500 Essential Underground Rock Albums, does not list this self-titled album. It actually lists the second album, Bird Brain, as one of the Essential 500. So that's just another plug to go more deeply into the Buffalo Tom catalog. But uh, here it does reference the first record. Here's Andrew Earls on Buffalo Tom, Bird Brain. After a self-titled debut on SST, Buffalo Tom took its melodic guitar squall to the majors with this superior set of nuts and bolts indie rock. Like its debut, the one that we're doing on this show, this album was produced by friend of the band and quasi-mentor Jay Mascus of Dinosaur Jr. In fact, critical detractors had taken to nicknaming the band Dinosaur Jr. Jr., but that wise-ass dismissal overlooks the electrifying power and heart behind this rock-solid album. And I'd say the same for this self-titled record. Yeah, that Bird Brain is is great. Like you said, also produced by Jay and Sean Slade of, of Fort Apache and um, ex-member of the Sex Execs, Ryan, remember? Oh man, do I ever. Sean also plays on it, actually. Uh, if you're like me and you're just diving into Buffalo Tom in a serious way for the first time this week, you'll like this Bird Brain record if you like this one. It's uh, it's cool. It's it's not dissimilar to this one. Uh, it's got a cool acoustic cover of a Psychedelic Furs song on it. It's really good. I mean, like I said, I've heard Buffalo Tom before, but more those later 90s records. I've never yeah. really dove into them in a serious way, and I'm, I'm sure glad I did. Yeah, and I've only really dove into the first two records and kind of picked up the later albums in my travels. Haven't really, like, really sought them out. Like I've got this this promo one. I've got the uh, the B sides record. I've got probably most of their records up to 2007, yeah. but it's official after diving into this. Oh yeah, uh, I'm record. all in, man. Yeah, yeah, I'm a completist now. <laughs> yeah. Done deal. Same. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna deep dive into Buffalo Tom's entire discography for sure. Let's get into this record, Ryan. History lesson part two. So, as we've mentioned a few times, recorded at Fort Apache, the Roxbury location, Fort Apache South as, as it was known. It just says 1988 is when it was recorded, so likely in fits and starts by the sounds of things. Engineered by Tim O'Hare, produced by the band and Jay Mascus, mixed by Sean Slade and Jay. We've talked a lot about Fort Apache and Sean Slade. Uh, we had Fort Apache co-owner and engineer Paul Coldery on the show for episode 216. Uh, not sure if we've seen Tim O'Hare before. Uh, as Bill told us, he was in the band with Tom McGinnis and his and Tom's cousin Phil Rattel. Plate of Mutton, aka Skylar Henkel. <laughs> he Tim O'Hare worked on tons of records, just like Sean and Paul. Green Magnet School, Sabado, Six Finger Satellite, Come, Moving Targets, Only Living Witness, Sam I Am, many more. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um. We pretty much covered all the the different releases that this album came out on, but it was released on SST on CD, LP, and cassette. So, track one, side one, Sunflower Suit. Right out of the gate, if I my first thought hearing this, if I was going to compare it to another SST band, it might actually be The Screaming Trees. Yeah, maybe. It's just the best college rock, alternative rock going at the time when this came out. Yeah. Killer opener, super catchy, obvious single, 
a good choice for the video, which you can find on YouTube. Um, also, like we've said, came out as an actual single, uh, but not on SST, released on ni- in 1989. Yeah, the call and response vocals on this track, too, are just like oh yeah, the creme de la creme. They do everything. Yeah, definitely would have fit on a bill with Dinosaur, Das Domin, The Trees. Yes. I, I'm sure they played with all of those bands. Yeah, for sure. Oh, man. If the Domin get back together, that'd be a great double bill, hey? Yeah. Buffalo Tom and the Domin? Yeah, man. Oh, man. The next song is The Plank. As Bill mentions, somewhat unique in, in that Tom brought in these chords as a song idea, that acoustic a uh, riff that opens the song sounds like it's mic'd from across the room, so it gives this really neat effect that increases the impact of the band kind of kicking in. I love the opening lyric, I would walk the plank, I would die with my boots on, like all good cowboys do, and you could find the treasure on your shore. I don't know if you heard this, Ryan, but I can't really give you a spe- specific example of why I think this, but all week when I heard this album, and this song in particular, I was reminded of this Canadian band that was pretty popular here during this same era, and that's The Watchmen. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just makes me think of 90s indie rock, specifically some Canadian bands. I think it's the melodies, the acoustic guitars mixed with the electric guitars, and the way that they interact, the vocal harmonies, and where the vocal harmonies are placed in the song, like in the verses, instead of not just in the chorus. The cool thing about this song is it's kind of just this repeating hypnotic, style of a song style song that doesn't really have a chorus the the chorus is just a chord change the next song is impossible um i believe bill says this one dates back to his pre buffalo tom band rambunctious llamas (laughs) (laughs) i guess if you're a a rambunctious llama you got to be careful or you might be a plate of mutton yeah (laughs) actually i think that's lambs right not llamas Straight away, unmistakably, Jay Maskus playing lead. His leads are always just so melodic. The whole album has a real loose and unpolished live feel for me. Uh, like the best bands, I'm thinking Stones, Replacements. Um, the harmonies are real loose in the most perfect way. It just sounds like a band playing live in the studio, which is the way it should sound and probably how it was recorded, I'm guessing. Yeah, there's no shame in this sounding like Dino. It also sounds like some uh like the restless records era of the doughboys to me i just i just want more yeah all that stuff we were talking about of breaking the rules about um you know hitting the switch on your on your pedal when you're going into a lead or something live in the studio like that was just not allowed i i credit eddie van halen for kind of and ted templeman for kind of pioneering that kind of stuff who's ted templeton Templeman, the producer of those early Van Halen records. Oh, I yeah. see. Okay. They're the ones that kind of went for it. Yeah. Got it. The next track, 500,000 Warnings. Bill didn't seem to really rate this one, which is fair. I mean, you know, you're going to, you're not going to keep every song you ever wrote in your set. Like some of them just get dropped right away. I yeah. like it. Uh, he mentions the Husker Du, Husker du influence on the band or on him. And you can hear it here, I'd say. This could be a Grant Hart song. Um, love yeah. those feedback-laden solos that just Bill just peels off on this album. Yeah. 
I I had uh, Grant Hart or Evan Dando yeah. as as a reference. I think it's great. They do a good job on this record and kind of going slow, fast, slow, fast, just from song to song too. Yeah. The next one is The Bus. This track has a real epic quality to it, written by, as Bill says, when he was living in New York. Um, you mentioned the Lemonheads. I think they played with the Lemonheads during this era also, and probably later, later, which which makes sense with them both both being Boston bands, at least at that time. Uh, this could have easily fit on on the Lemonheads' Lovey album. Bill's vocal on this this one gives you the feels. It's kind of like one of those time and place songs that just evokes that feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another band we haven't mentioned, but I I think Bill mentioned it in the interview is soul asylum comes to mind when I listen to this record too, in the best way. Yeah. And just like that, we're done side one and we're flipping it over for Racine. Another one bill wrote in New York about a a trans person leading a a pretty harrowing existence. That piano part really adds to the overall mood of the song and and the lyrics. This one just really struck me all week is just an amazing song. Yeah. Interesting mix on some of the toms too that stand out from the rest of the album. Yeah. In the Attic, like I said earlier, can't really put my finger on it, but uh, maybe the it's the chords that kept making th- me think of Radio Birdman every time I heard this one mm. this week. Might be that the guitar tone is, you know, it's an electric guitar with a fairly clean tone playing the chords on top of everything. Radio Birdman didn't use a, a lot of distortion. Either way, this is just a total rager. Super violent solo, almost like something you'd hear Paul Leary of the Butthole Surfers do. Mm-hmm. Just love it. Yeah, Kind of odd, hey, on this record, the amount of wah-wah that's not recorded by Jack and Dino, hey? <laughs> uh, flush, well, I'm guessing the, the Fort Apache dudes were well accustomed with to wah pedals as oh, well. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Flushing Stars is the next one. This is the one that has Phil Rattel, Tom's cousin, on backing vocals. This mm-hmm. is just another really great song. I uh, hate, hate to keep repeating myself, but the word that just keeps coming back to mind is epic. Like, these songs just have a certain quality to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, an Americana vibe to these, even these earlier Buffalo Toms that really foreshadow what they evolved into as well in their later albums. And... I don't know if that's the epic quality that's coming through for you. Yeah, when I hear this, I just think to myself, like if you were a lifelong fan of the band, of to Buffalo Tom, and you saw them live today and they played the, like this song or another deep cut off this album, you you just might want to cry. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the kind of feeling that a song like this would, would evoke in some way. Yeah. yeah. Okay, the next one is Walk Away. Uh, the band also plays really well together. We haven't really talked about that too much, but the way uh, Bill and Chris almost play off of each other, the bass and the guitar, this song really illustrates that. Uh, Bill referenced as that as the ancient art of weaving. That's a Keith Richards... Uh, Stones, yeah. Ron Wood thing. Uh, a really great melodic solo from Bill. People talk about Jay or whatever, but you know they were both clearly influenced by Neil, like with the use of feedback... Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, playing the song and then complementing the melody of the song within the solo. Yeah. I mean, if there's one criticism that I kind of have for this record, it's that from time to time, I can't hear the bass very well or not as well as I would like to. 
And you don't need to do that just by increasing its volume. You can do that by changing its tone. And I unfortunately have never heard the SST version of this. I'm now going to seek it out. I don't know if it's a different mix or mastering or anything like that, mm -hmm. but um, I'm wondering if uh, maybe the bass comes out a little bit more, a little bit more clearly on the SST version. Don't know. Yeah. That is one thing that I wish I could hear a little bit better on the record. Yeah. This song, Walk Away, also has some really subtle piano that fits just perfectly into it. And then we've got the last song, Reason Why. A great, catchy, catchy song to end the re record. Lots of amazing feedback and whammy bar action in the solo. This is just the definition of a deep cut. Just a killer jam right at the end of an album. Yeah. So many of these songs, you could just see... You, you talk about Buffalo Tom playing them live. You could really see them extending these out and just go and just ape shit on them. Yeah. Oh, I have a few, I have a few reviews about some of that that talks about some of that kind of stuff. Like, uh, here's one from, uh, the Boston Phoenix, 1989 by Tim Riley as lead singer and guitarist for Buffalo Tom, Bill Janovitz's heavy fuzz bombast seems to sprout its own rhythm section. On their debut for SST, the band finds ample new ground to chart in hard rock tr trio diagrams that other bands have long since worn out. Songs rise out of the opening tremor of Janowitz's guitar and quickly cascade into tidal waves, then whole oceans of sound. It seems impossible that there are only three instruments responsible for all the noise. As the local debut of the season, it shoots straight through the debut qualifier, making you think this band has a longer past goes into a bit of their history, um, and then it talks about the record. The spark of Buffalo Tom is not that they have a guitar-heavy anchor. Their strength stems from their heavy weight sense of an ensemble. Kicks that spike both sharp and deep. Songs typically visit three and four sections, spin deftly in and out of bridges, often circulate toward distant key areas in finish. Sunflower Suit, The Bus, a dreamy but not queasy exercise in rolling thunder psychedelia. Drops a line about Billie Holiday without sounding gratuitous. As Janowitz's guitar leaps up to glide above the wreckage, it comes close to the per pervasive sense of loss that the blues can provide. I don't care if you don't understand, he wails. I will be there anyway. Just found out what you mean today, coaxing himself as much as his lover. That he calls... Uh, Bill Janowitz, a sure-footed wordsmith. Hmm. I would agree with that. The lyrics are really great. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these these articles I found from back in the day talk about how all three musicians started as guitarists and that that informed their sound. Like that, that uh, Chris Coburn plays bass like a guitarist. It seemed like the band members ended up on their instruments and even Bill as vocalist by kind of default yeah yeah this one article i'm looking at compares compares them to um southern rock which i don't really hear van morrison and blue cheer i don't really hear any of that mm. but i'm sure they listen to all of that stuff yeah i don't know we've talked a lot about people writing off this era of sst and the label and how ridiculous that line of thought is and this is just another example that of, you know, what I would call a late era SST classic. Yeah. 
almost a unfortunately forgotten gem in the catalog. Although it's been reissued a couple of times, but it'd be great if there was a Buffalo Tom Resurgence Boy. And it is interesting that the label, this late in its era, right before it starts just going into, you know, repackaging, you know, like right before it starts doing that, um, they squoze in. And after Dinosaur Jr. is going to release any any more full lengths on the label too, right? Yeah. So Dino is maybe near the end of its relationship with the label and they squeeze in this lone Buffalo Tom record. Amazing. Yeah, well, and SST by this point was almost a farm team for Beggar's Banquet. A lot of, that's the label a lot of bands jump ship to. Yeah. Yeah. Including like Sonic Youth. Cover art by Jason Tallerman and Bob Hamilton. Um, they collaborated on it. Mutant guy, <laughs> as Bill says in the interview. Um, I think he says it's, it was a print. It almost looks like a lino cut or something. doesn't look like a painting to me. Does it say L-U-V on mutant guy's belly? I think so. Like, you best believe I'm in love, L-U-V. L-U-V, like, uh, New, what is that, New York Dolls? Yeah. Yeah. Bill drew the logo and the icons. Um, the photo on back on the back by Jason um, Tallerman looks like maybe that same Cambridge apartment that you can see in the fun- sunflower suit video. I've just got this reissue. Are you talking about the uh, the one where they're at the dining table? Yeah, yeah, I think so. There's another one too on the the enemy single that looks like it could be from the same apartment too, but it's in like a bathroom. Yeah. Are we ready to do the ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. Man, there's a lot to pick from this week. Um, Obviously, for me anyways, I would go with Sunflower Suit. It's pretty hard to deny that track. I like the plank. Um, I like Impossible with Jay on it. Um, Racine. Oh man. Reason why. Reason why is a deep cut. Love that one too. There's a lot to choose from. Yeah, all these songs are good. You could pick any one of these. Mine were Sunflower Suit, Impossible, The Bus, Racine, which I just love, In the Attic, and Reason Why. Mm. We can do Sunflower Suit. I feel like we probably have to. Sure. You know, let's blow people away on this mixtape. Yeah. All right. Thanks to Bill Janibitz for being on the show. Yeah, so great. Another great guy who has some great stories, who shares them with us and shares their time with us. We're uh, we're pretty lucky, so thank you. Yeah. All right. Hey, Ryan, uh, we haven't really mentioned this, but we're kind of, we've shifted into this bi-weekly mode. Maybe. Who knows? The summer's kind of fucked, so who knows how, <laughs> how things are going to end up here. But the plan, as it stands right now, is to to be back in two weeks with... SST251, The Zoog's Rift torment album we're about to get tormented with zoogs again (laughs) can't wait hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show our blog is mojackpod.com please check it out for some exclusive content if you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support. 
and we hope to see you next week.